a better world, a better you. Uh, certainly for myself, I know my mental health has not been as fragile in many years as this. You might have heard the Stockdale Paradox. It tells us that to endure in difficulty and main maintain perspective in trials, we do need much more than naive wishes, like the turn of a calendar to sustain us. To look to phantoms like a date change tends to make things worse. On the other hand, something like Christmas, that can make a world rejoice, even in and through its weariness. And by Christmas, of course, I don't mean eggnog and prawns and family reunions, but the birth of Jesus. It did seem that on that first Christmas, heaven and earth united in rejoicing. Uh, fearsome angels in heaven sang glory. Inscrutable magi from the east paid homage and pious, righteous Jews who could see the reality in the baby, they marveled in the temple. That place which symbolized above all others the joining of heaven and earth. And if there is one thing our weary world needs now, it's to be united to heaven. With Christmas, the first Christmas, the wait for a saviour was over. The weariness can be endured permanently now, or at least until heaven and earth are permanently married when weariness will be no more. Well, the Bible reading from Hebrews 1 gives us three reasons why Christmas can sustain us in our weariness. Uh, not just sustain us, actually, to cause us to rejoice. Firstly, we can rejoice that Christmas brings clarity. Christmas brings clarity in a world of weary confusion and uncertainty. And you can see that there, beginning from Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. There's a contrast happening there. Previously, God spoke in many and various ways by the prophets, but since Christmas, in these latter days, he has spoken by a son. This clarity of Christmas comes in at least two ways. There is the clarity which finality brings. Long ago, before Christmas, God spoke. Uh, God spoke and spoke in many and various ways. We might think of, I don't know, constant updates, additional alerts, breaking news, just as helpful as they can be, they wear us down. But then, verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken. It's almost punctilia in comparison. No more spoke. It's all spoken. How good is Christmas? There is also the clarity of uniqueness in Christmas. The prophets, they are messengers and they are plural and they are common. We might think of endless press conferences by different authorities giving 
different angles on different jurisdictions and spheres of life. But then, verse 2, not many, but one. He is spoken by a son. Singular and special. Distinctively authoritative. How good is Christmas? Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken by a son. We can rejoice in the clarity of Christmas that with Jesus' birth, God has spoken with finality. We can rejoice in the clarity of Christmas that with Jesus' birth, God has spoken with uniqueness. We need not be wearied by confusion or uncertainty about what God is saying. Christmas makes it clear because Christmas signified finality and uniqueness in the message of God to the world. Quick sidebar before moving on, just to deal with a potential important question. If Jesus is the final and unique word of God, does that mean the words of the prophets of long ago are bad or faulty? What are we to make of the Old Testament, for example? Because uh, we need to understand this contrast right, don't we? You could get it a bit wrong. It's not the contrast between inadequate and adequate, or faulty and functional, or between false and true. It's more like the contrast between partial and whole. A bud becoming a flower. Or the contrast between promise and fulfillment. Engagement to wedding. Jesus didn't come and correct the words of the prophets. He came and completed them. He brought finality. He brought uniqueness. A couple may talk about the wedding and the ceremony many, many times, both pre and post marriage. But there is only one actual time in which the vows and declaration of union achieve the occasion. Which is why when you read the rest of Hebrews, you'll find that there is no other New Testament book that uses the Old Testament as much as to point a light onto who this Jesus is, born at Christmas. So that's the sidebar. Keep reading your Old Testament. First reason to rejoice in our weariness, there is clarity in God's revelation to the world because of Christmas. Secondly, we, we can rejoice in the divine love that Christmas showers on us in a world weary, in isolation, distancing, and protocols. And we pick this up as we keep reading. We can know God has spoken by our son, verse 2 then continues, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. This, of course, is the identity of the son born at Christmas in five phrases. He's the designator owner of all things. In fact, everything owes their source to him. In relation to God, 
He is like the dazzling mirror light of the sun, S-U-N, shining the dazzling glory of the S-U-N into our eyes. He is the exact mold or stamp of God's very nature into the identity of human form, our malleable flesh. And everything, even my speaking now and the gravitational forces keeping you in your seat right now, it's all upheld by his creative agency. There is so much more we could explore than these in those little paraphrases I just gave. But the sum of them, the sum of them is to say that when God finally spoke uniquely in his son, he wasn't giving us extra information, more duties, deeper concepts. At base, he was giving us himself. It would be hard to describe God any better than those five phrases. And they are all applied to Jesus. So at Christmas, God was in Jesus, entering the world to be with us, to take our humanity with its frailty and limitations into himself, to live our lives alongside us, to be part of our experience. In other words, because of the identity of the one born at Christmas, we can rejoice that God has showered his love on us. And this is just the necessary corollary of the first point, isn't it? Yes, Christmas brings clarity, finality and uniqueness in how God communicated, but, but that's so because of the identity of the one who came at Christmas. And so the relief of clarity, thank you, God, point one, can quickly turn to the thrill of God, Thank you. It's been said too many cards or messages can be cover for emotional absence. And too big a present can be to alleviate the guilt of unfaithful love. At Christmas, God didn't send yet another message, but arrived. At Christmas, God didn't dazzle with an expensive gift, but gave us himself in person. In other words, at Christmas, we rejoice because we have been showered with divine love. And so in a time when we are weary from vigilance, Perhaps separated from family and friends in our holidays, maybe with travel plans in tatters, just lots that weighs us down. Those of us who know Christ can still rejoice. His birth assures us of God's divine love. To give us himself in such a magnificent way, that's, that's a showering. Rejoice and be assured of God's 
love for you, even with that heavy heart, he still loves you. Even in that anxious state, he still loves you. Even with our up and down emotional life, he still loves us. Even with that questioning lament, he still loves you. In fact, even if you should be sad in his very presence, because you can't sing carols about his birth, he still loves you when you are sad with him. We know because he who created us, upholds us, owns everything, is the exact representation of God's very nature, has shown up to embrace our lives as his own. Our disappointments, our anxieties, our stresses, our limitations, our anguish, he has embraced it all because he has embraced all of us and each of us. Now, what all this means is that the birth of Jesus is not merely the prelude to the highlights of his career or person. It's not simply that after he was born, he went on to achieve great things. In that kind of storyline, maybe we'd still have Christmas, but would have Christmas because his birth could be remembered as a suitable marker to his legacy. No, he, his birth is integral to the very celebration of Christmas, of Jesus, sorry. Because Christmas itself is part and parcel of the achievement, you see. God has spoken with clarity the finality and uniqueness of a son who is none other than God with us and amongst us coming to us. And yet... Well, and yet, there is a great achievement coming later too. So thirdly and lastly, our passage goes on to describe an achievement of the grown Jesus. The very next sentence says, When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You've done the hard work for us, search the rest of Hebrews to work this out. What is this purification he made? And here in chapter 9, verse 14, it says, it's the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God that purifies our consciences from dead works to worship the living God. So this, of course, is not especially a Christmas event. This is Good Friday. This is the crucifixion of Jesus. But nevertheless, I, I, I want to say that this purification for sins is a Christmas implication. So I need you to work hard with me here. Imagine, imagine you don't all know all that you do. Imagine I just didn't go to Hebrews 9. You don't know the full storyline. And I just said to you, you know what? The fully divine Son of God is coming over for lunch to your place today. He's going to want some food. How do you feel? What sort of event is this going to turn out to be? 
Is, is today a good day? The sun's come for lunch. Well, at 12.47, you've nearly got the food ready and there's a sound at the door, but the kids beat you, they always do, they bound down the hall, they fling open the door. And there lays the little Lord Jesus, asleep on the cattle hay. But then he awakes, and as I see, some crying he makes. See, if, if it weren't for the fact that Jesus was a helpless baby at Christmas, it could actually be a terrifying day that God showed up in the world as one of us, couldn't it? Just, just what will happen as this baby grows up? What did this Jesus who made everything do when he, he went from dependency to independence? You, you can almost feel the tension mounting over the years, can't you? As this infant becomes a child, becomes a, an adult, you're watching, you're waiting. How did this one who owned the universe behave? What was his next move? He made purification for sins. That's what he did. That's the signature move. that he became one of us as a helpless babe perhaps anticipates that he didn't come to terrify didn't come to shake us up he came to give himself up for us in temple worship uh, purification took place by sacrifice at the altar in the courtyard and then the high priest taking some blood in and sprinkling the blood in the Holy of Holies, right in the inner sanctum, upon the Ark of the Covenant where, where God's glory rested. Now get this, no priest ever presented their own blood, nor was there ever a chair in the Holy of Holies for them to sit on. The only one sitting in there was God himself, enthroned by the cherubim angels averting their eyes. So if you like, this is, this is the joyous implication of Christmas, that just as God showed up himself amongst us in Jesus, his son, so that that same son now fully, one of us now amongst us in flesh, lived our lives in the samely fleshly realities could therefore also go on to represent us in a return journey to God, taking upon himself the cost of our purification, taking unto himself for us a sacrifice of his blood, necessary for all that is in us and taking this cost 
into himself as a sacrifice, he went into God's presence. He became our very purification rites. And there he sat down. It was complete. He didn't come out. Didn't have to come back and do it again. He is the only one ever to have sat down in the Holy of Holies. The only priest whose purification for sin was total and eternal. Since God became one of us at Christmas, he could represent us back eternally with God. Rejoice, weary world, rejoice. There is nothing putrid in our hearts that he cannot say he has already made purification for. Nothing. To conclude, the three reasons given in these few verses for why the weary world can rejoice at Christmas, the clarity that God has spoken with finality and uniqueness happened on Christmas. The thrill that God has not just given us extra information, but he has given us himself at Christmas and the assurance that because of that this son of God could go on to represent us in the journey back to God he made purification for our sins so that our sacrifice is complete and eternal Jesus sat down forever nothing in us can pollute the cleansing that he made and all of this can be boiled down into this profound reason to rejoice that because of Christmas, heaven and earth can be united. God amongst us and us restored to God. That is why, partly in verse 6, when God sends his firstborn into the world at Christmas, he says, let all my angels worship him. See, there is God the Father whom the angels worship in heaven but now with Christmas there is God the Son whom the earth the angels worship on earth this bringing together of heaven and earth and we can join this worship of Jesus too we can rejoice too because of Christmas we can be sustained in our weary world because we know that one day one day heaven is going to be married to earth forever the birth of Jesus and all it entailed implies and guarantees this. Praise you, Lord God. Praise you, great high priest Jesus. Amen.